Well, good morning and thank you very much for the warm welcome. It's very good to be back worshipping with you again this morning. Let us pray. God of all time and space, God with us at this time and in this place, we come together gladly, hopefully, expectantly, with all our heart and mind to hear your call, to listen for your word of truth, to strengthen our commitment to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We come with our different stories and our different needs, the baggage of ups and downs, of joys and sorrows that each one of us carries. We want to lead good lives, to do good, to feel good, but there are times when despite our best intentions we fall short. We miss chances to be supportive and helpful. We're too quick in what we say or do and thus cause unnecessary hurt. Loving God, we confess to our brokenness, to the times and ways we wound our lives, the lives of others, and the life of the world. Out of the abundance of your mercy, we seek your forgiveness now. Release us from any burden of pain and guilt. Free us and heal us of all that hurts and harms us. By your grace, raise us now to newness of life, that we may love and serve you and one another in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught his friends to pray together, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen. We read in the prophet Micah, um, chapter 6, reading at verse 6. And if you're following in the church Bible, that would be at page 903. What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? Shall I bring the best calves to burn and as offerings to him? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep or endless streams of olive oil? Shall I offer him my firstborn child to pay for my sins? No, the Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is this, to do what is just, to show constant love, and to live in humble fellowship with our God. And reading in 1 Corinthians... Chapter 1 and verse 18, and that's page 206 in the Church Bible. Paul says to the church in Corinth, For the message about Christ's death on the cross 
is nonsense to those who are being lost. But for us who are being saved, it is God's power. The scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and set aside the understanding of the scholars. So then, where does that leave the wise or the scholars or the skillful debaters of this world? God has shown that this world's wisdom is foolishness. For God in his wisdom made it impossible for people to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by means of the so-called foolish message we preach, God decided to save those who believe. Jews want miracles for proof, and Greeks look for wisdom. As for us, we proclaim the crucified Christ, a message that's offensive to the Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles. But for those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, this message is Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For what seems to be God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and what seems to be God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. (coughs) Last Sunday morning, after the service at Wellington, where my wife and I are members, I was talking with our student minister, who had just preached there for the the first time. He's a very interesting man. He's from Cuba, where he trained as a minister with one of the Protestant churches there. Then he worked in Spain for a few years, and after that he came to Glasgow with his family, and he's been here, I think, a couple of years or so now. And for a while he worked as locum at the church in Gardner Street, And during that time and since coming to Scotland, he decided he wanted to become a minister within the Church of Scotland. Now, there are various hoops and processes to get through for this to happen. He has to be attached to a congregation, which is why he's with Wellington at the moment, in order to gain more experience of the Church of Scotland. And someone in this position also has to study certain subjects, including Scottish Church history and church law. And as part of his course, he's undertaking a special project, and he's chosen to look at the Eucharist, Holy Communion, as a means or instrument of mission. And last Sunday, when he and I were talking, we weren't talking so much about the sermon as we were talking about this project of his, and another Wellington member came up and also got involved in the discussion. And I'd been suggesting that a major factor in what he was thinking about uh, is that he was thinking about kind of reaching out to people who don't belong to the church through the communion. And I suggested that maybe he to take account of the fact that the tradition and regulations of many Christian denominations are still pretty exclusive with strict control over who can and can't receive communion. I remember not so long ago, within the Church of Scotland, when I joined the Church of Scotland myself, and when 
I was confirmed as a member and then when I was an elder before I trained as a minister. In these days, you, you had to have a communion card uh, and that was delivered to you beforehand in your, in your home by one of the elders. And if you didn't have a card like that, if you're very lucky and you were persuasive enough, you maybe got, a, get, got one at the door. But if you didn't have that, you actually had to sit in a part of the church where you wouldn't get the bread and the wine. And in previous generations, of course, those of us who have a sense of Scottish history and so on, we know that, it was before our time, but we know that there was a time when the communion table in churches of Scotland, were, the communion table was literally fenced off. There was a kind of rail, a fence uh, in front of it. And access was permitted only to those whose life was accepted by the Kirk Session, the ruling elders, as morally sound. And if that was the case, you got a communion token, a kind of entrance ticket. Usually they were made of pewter, and there's some people who collect communion tokens these days, and each congregation one of its own with a distinctive stamp. Now, it doesn't take too much imagination to see what offence and moral hypocrisy this kind of arrangement. I mean, which of us actually could, you know, would be rash enough to say that we could, should receive communion. So there was a lot of stuff around. Holy Willie's prayer and all that sort of stuff. This is, the, this is the Burns season. But I'm glad to say that all that has long since gone. But there are some vestiges of it still around. And I, I can't remember, and I should know, what the law and the practice is within the Baptist church. But my own approach, as of some other Church of Scotland ministers, is to make it clear that when we're uh, presiding over the celebration of communion, to make it clear that the invitation to share in communion is open to all who love to uh, love and seek to follow in the way of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not conditional but it's a sacrament of grace. But the formal position within the Church of Scotland remains that access to, the, to communion is supposed to be limited to members of any branch of God's church, although there's no attempt to define whether membership comes by virtue of baptism or profession of faith. And, a, and an exception is also made with chil for children with parental consent and appropriate preparation. And of course, while many denominations now have full mutual recognition for such purposes, this is, this is not the case with the Roman Catholic Church, where the likes of us are not normally allowed to receive the bread and wine. And in our discussion, when we were talking about all this sort of stuff last Sunday, the other Wellington member who joined us and comes from a brethren background put it very well when he said that too often it's black and white, you're either in or you're out. Especially in the light of our readings this morning, that very short passage from the prophet Micah outlining what the good life is in response to the question, what does God require of you? And then these verses about the nature and essence of the gospel calling from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the young church at Corinth. From these readings, it seems to me to be clear that if we take seriously the promises and purposes of God as revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus, if we really believe in the reality of God's grace, God's unconditional love, there is no room for exclusion on any grounds at all. Black and white, 
old and young, men and women, gay and straight, rich and poor, somehow, and it's a big leap of faith and understanding to accept this, somehow within the mystery and providence of God, all are in. Now that's uh, to say that we're all in is an ambiguous phrase, of course, these days. We're all in it together, as the political catchphrase goes. And the phrase all in, of course, also means totally exhausted. But what I'm getting at is that within God's kingdom, we are all insiders. All of us and all of the people out there, every person out there is an insider within God's kingdom. There is no preferential treatment. Each one of us is an insider. No matter how good or how bad, whatever the color of our skin, what we believe, not only potentially, but actually, we are insiders. Each one of us is of equal value and worth, equally accepted and welcome, whatever our circumstances and attributes. To see things in this way To try to live this out is not only demanding and difficult, it's also counter-cultural. We all have a natural inclination to pigeonhole people, to seek to put them into categories, because we may find that way it's easier to relate to them, to deal with them. One of the notable distinctions between Glasgow and Edinburgh, they say, is not only the old chestnut about whether or not visitors are asked if they've had their tea, but that when you meet someone at a party or wherever, one of the first questions you're asked is, what school did you go to? In Edinburgh, the answer puts you in a socioeconomic class. In Glasgow, it reveals whether you're Protestant or Catholic. That passage from 1 Corinthians tells us that the message of the gospel stands all that sort of thing, stands all worldly values, priorities, and expectations on their head. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. In today's world, society is afflicted by what has been dubbed affluenza, a preoccupation with wealth, possessions, status, and power. Our identity and worth depends on what we have, not on who we or how we are. These days it's almost as if we live in electronic cocoons with an illusion of self-sufficiency and independence, preoccupied with our own well-being, jealous of our own space, suspicious of strangers, careless of, even oblivious to the needs of others and the world around us and beyond. Where there is giving, too often there's the expectation of reciprocity, so that there's something in it for me, I'll get something back. And despite the stretching of horizons through the globalization of communication and information, too often our lives are limited, qualified, our loving is conditional. Now I know that as a summing up of the ethos of life today, this is an overgeneralization, a caricature even to an extent a a misrepresentation. But I suspect it does ring some bells, and if there's even a grain of truth in that wee description, it's a matter of concern, because this, what I've described, is not 
the good life, the fullness of life that is not only God's purpose for us, but is also what deep down within each of us human hearts long for. This is not what God requires of us. Ten days ago, Ruth and I were at a funeral. My wife and I were at a funeral in an independent Pentecostal church. It was our first experience of such an event, and I confess I was a little apprehensive. The funeral was a service of thanksgiving for the life of a 39-year-old woman who had been totally disabled since birth through cerebral palsy. She'd been cared for with selfless devotion by her mother with the support of three elder daughters and their families. And at no point in the service, contrary to my fears beforehand, did I feel uncomfortable, either with what was said or with the style of worship. The whole occasion was a a wonderful celebration and recognition of unconditional love. God's love and the mother's love for her daughter. Her own response to these persistent questions that are asked of us, each day. What does God require of us? What way are we to follow? What hopes and priorities do we have in our lives? Where and how will we discover and experience fullness of life? What makes sense? In the contemporary debate about God, Richard Dawkins, the God delusion, the whole argument about the need for empirical evidence to justify religion, the conviction that if you can't prove or measure something, it doesn't exist, the so-called new atheists and all that. It's been, in this context, it's been very perceptively said, Christianity was never meant to be an explanation of anything in the first place. It's rather like saying that thanks to the electric toaster, we can forget about Chekhov. The Christian faith is about exploration rather than about explanation. Above all, it's about transformation. The promise of new life, new possibilities, changed lives, changing lives, changing the world. Christianity is not a watertight package of dogmas. It doesn't so much provide answers as enable you to live with or simply live the hard questions. Poverty and Homelessness Week, which starts today, reminds and challenges us concerning needs on our own doorstep. And all the pundits tell us that in the light of the recent comprehensive spending review and the forthcoming public expenditure cuts, things are going to get worse. In 2009 to 10, according to the latest figures available, 42,000 people in Scotland were homeless. And despite the urgent need for affordable social housing, twice as many houses are being built in the private as in the public sector, where the real need is. These facts and the inexorably widening gap between the richest and the poorest among us are a scar. More than that, a gaping wound, an unacceptable offence in any society that purports to be civilised and caring. And they're utterly at odds with the all-embracing vision of God's kingdom, 
justice, joy, peace, and fullness of life for all. What God requires of us, to go back to that Micah question, is neither to condone nor to collude in this position. We must take it into account when deciding what to do with our money, our time, our vote. We are called, each of us in our own, own way, to a life of engaged spirituality. In other words, to do justice, <laughs> to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God, as the Micah text puts it. We are called to share in the culture of enough and to embody the life of the kingdom within which everyone born has a place at the table where generosity, hospitality and a strong sense of belonging together and mutual responsibility prevail. We are called, each one of us, to trust in God's grace to be channels of God's unconditional love, to reflect the mind of Christ, energized by God's Spirit, to be people of compassion, justice, and integrity. Amen. May it be so this day and through all the days ahead. And to God be the glory. In our prayers for others, you're invited to join in the sung response, which is printed on the order of service, the Teze chant, O Lord, hear my prayer. And that's led into by my saying the words, Lord, hear our prayer. So let us pray. Living God, we bring before you now our concerns for the world, for the church, for those in need and for ourselves. We thank you for your goodness, for all that enriches and strengthens our lives, for light and love and laughter, for friends and families, for our belonging together and the mutual support that enables us to keep going through hard times. We thank you for your steadfast love and your amazing grace, made human in the life, ministry, and rising again of Jesus, present with us still in the power of the Holy Spirit, challenging, disturbing, guiding, healing, and transforming, sufficient for all our needs. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for the world in which we live in its beauty and its brokenness. Help all those who are working to safeguard the natural environment, to reduce the threats to endangered species and limited energy resources. We pray for all places where there is conflict and violence, 
remembering once more all those striving for peace, stability, and justice in Afghanistan, Israel, Palestine, and elsewhere, and thinking especially of the situation in Egypt. Lord, hear our prayer. pray for the church, for the life of this congregation and the wider work of the church in every corner of the world. Strengthen your people with a sense of purpose, with courage, creativity, insight, and a readiness to take risks, moving ever onwards, looking outwards in the cause of the gospel. In this and every place, may we worship joyfully, witness obediently, and serve cheerfully. Lord, hear our prayer. Pray for those who are suffering in any way at this time, people who are victims of poverty and homelessness, those in our society and elsewhere who lack the everyday things we take for granted, shelter, food, clothing, public utilities, friendship. And we pray for all who seek to help them, whether through works of mercy or through the eradication of the sins and shortcomings of society that are the root cause of the problems. We pray for political leaders and decision makers, that they may govern with wisdom, equity and compassion for those who are left behind and outside. We pray for those who are ill and anxious, those who are lonely or bereaved, remembering now in a moment of silence Katrina, and any others about whom we are especially concerned at this time. Lord, hear our prayer. bring before you too the prayers of our own inmost hearts. As our pilgrim journey goes on, help us to be faithful to the gospel and valiant for all that is true and right and good. 
And keep us mindful of and thankful for those who have gone before us in the faith, have touched and influenced our lives for good, and are now safe in the eternal joy of your nearer presence beyond the mystery of death. We offer all these prayers through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go forth in hope, keep alive the faith, and the blessing of God, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with you all now and evermore.